0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we hear in your word and we see in our lives the surpassing value of knowing you and being known by you. We should not boast in our wisdom. We should not seek the world's power and we should not trust in our deeds. Instead, Lord, we want to set our hearts and our minds on your wisdom, to seek your kingdom and to trust in Christ's righteousness. As we just heard the words from your son, in order to follow you, we must renounce all that competes with you for affection that is rightly yours. Father, we come to you in humility and contrition, knowing that in our flesh, we are still clinging to this world. We have selfishness, jealousy, and we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. We let pride interfere with relationships, and harm the people who are closest to us. And so we repent of these things, Lord. We ask you for forgiveness. And we thank you that in Christ, we have an advocate that will never fail. Thank you, Jesus, for your radical obedience, your willingness to let nothing come between you and loyalty to our Father. Thank you that through faith in you, we can now experience the covenant blessings that God has so richly poured out on you that you share with us. Lord, we marvel that in your covenant faithfulness you sanctify us and make us part of your family. So we thank you for each member of this local expression of your family. Thank you for calling us to yourself. Thank you for all the members' willingness to be in covenant relationship with each other for the sake of sanctification. Use our regular gathering, our love for one another, and the hope that you give us to make your name great in every circumstance that you put us in as we visit with friends, family, and colleagues, use our Christ-likeness to push back on evil in all its forms. We especially pray today for Deborah Thomas as she moves to India for a time. We ask that you would send her with our greetings to Bangalore Evangelical Church, where she will be fellowshipping while she is there. We We pray that she would continue to grow in devotion to you and that she would be a blessing to that church. Use her time there to grow her affection for your people there, and that through her going, uh, grow our affection for that gathering of believers. Grow our affection for churches around the world, and through that, give us humility about ourselves and a greater understanding of your redemptive love. Father, as cold, and flu, and fever, and other illnesses continue to circulate, we ask for relief for those who are suffering. Give those who are sick the rest and care that they need and help their bodies and immune systems to be strengthened. Give peace to those who are watching loved ones suffer. Help fevers to go down and use all of this to grow our longing for the fullness of your kingdom. Lord, we are ready for the second advent. Give us patience and satisfy us with the first advent while we wait for you. Thank you that while we wait for you, you have given us your word to supply us with knowledge of you and your works and plans in this world. Thank you for the book of Joshua and the way that it has taught us repeatedly that you never fail to fulfill your promises. You are faithful to complete what you have started in building a family and making a place for us to live with you. We pray that these lessons would take root deep in our hearts and our lives would be changed because of them. As we wrap up our study of Joshua this morning, let our brother Hans' words be supplied with your Holy Spirit to cut through our fleshly hearts, removing rebellion and making us a place where you can dwell enthroned. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Open your Bibles to Joshua 24. Joshua 24. How many of you have ever heard about the sign in the Notre Dame football locker room that says, play like a champion today? Anybody familiar with this? A few of you. It's a sign located between the locker room and the tunnel heading out to the field that is traditionally slapped by players for luck as they run out to the field. Now, it's so iconic. Interestingly enough, it was actually, that phrase was actually uh, started by, uh, I believe, the University of Oklahoma football coach long before Lou Holtz used it at Notre Dame. But Notre Dame marketed it. And interestingly enough, uh, it's used all across uh, the nation. There are locker rooms across the nation now that have signs like this that motivate their players. Now, in the basketball locker room, we had something similar but it was surrounded by pictures of previous accomplished players of the basketball program. And every day, when we went into and out of the locker room, we would go through this small hallway and look directly at the pictures of these players, and I must have seen these pictures hundreds, if not thousands of times. Now, fast-forward six years or so from graduation, and I'm at a Wednesday night Bible study for our church up in Portland, and I look across the school cafeteria in which we were meeting, and I see another man that is close to my height. So, of course, I had to go talk to him because it's an unwritten rule for anyone over 6'6", six, six, that when you see each other, you have to welcome each other into the room. You didn't know that? Okay. That's because you're all short. As we began to talk, I asked where the... Uh, this gentleman played ball, and he said, I played at Notre Dame for the in Irish. And he looked at me, and he asked me the same, and I said, well, I played at Notre Dame. We both stared at each other for a moment, and both of us didn't believe it because we were not that different in age, and we didn't really remember one another. Now, for him, this totally made sense because my career was made up of passing Gatorade down the bench more so than playing, so it was no shock that he didn't remember me. But I couldn't place him. Finally, he says to me, My name's Monty Williams, I'm the assistant coach for the Blazers. And it dawned on me. Monty was one of the pictures I ran past thousands of times. And yet here, standing in front of me in the flesh, I didn't make the connection between the face I had seen and the reality standing before me. I'd seen his photo so many times, and yet I didn't actually see it enough to know it in reality. Now I fear, dear brothers and sisters, that we have a text before us today where most Christians have a similar experience. They look at the text, they see the text, they've seen the text thousands of times, they've seen it on fridges, on tiles, above churches, and yet they've never actually seen it in reality. For years, my wife and I had in our house a nice decorative tile with the words from the end of Joshua 24, 15. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now in a way, it acted similar to the play like a champion today sign. In a sense, it was the thing that we kind of patted on the way out the door to be good Christians, if you get my meaning. For many, Joshua 24, 15 has become an evangelical motivational meme that stands far more for our faithfulness to God and our supposed strength of faith than it has anything to do with the Lord, whose name and covenant faithfulness is actually the focus of the passage that surrounds it. And so my hope this morning is that we can unpack the chapter that surrounds this famous verse so that rather than see it with our earthly eyes and recognize it as familiar with our earthly minds, we might truly know with our redeemed hearts, know what it means, and then our goal will be, able, will be to let it saturate our very souls with a knowledge of what it calls us to as followers of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob." We want to see how it applies to us in the New Covenant Church today. So this chapter will close down the book of Joshua by placing at its end a covenant and a covenant renewal ceremony that will serve as a seam or a hinge between it and the rest of the Bible. It will take the covenant faithfulness of God seen throughout the book and join it with the covenant renewal for Israel moving forward, and then it will show the need for a final, better covenant one that is perfect in its ability to hold fast the relationship between God and his covenant people for all eternity. And so as we finish the book of Joshua today, we will see a covenant fulfilled, a covenant renewed, and a covenant needed. That's the title for the sermon this morning, a covenant fulfilled, a covenant renewed, and a covenant needed. Let's jump right in and see the first thing this morning that we're going to cover the majority of the passage, covenant renewal between Yahweh and his conquered people. Covenant renewal between Yahweh and his conquered people. Let's go ahead and read, starting in verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God, and Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Now let's pause right there for just a moment. The majority of this chapter, the first 28 verses, is a renewal ceremony, but this section is well written because not only is it narrating the covenant renewal ceremony, but in a sense is serving as a miniature covenant itself. And that's what's going on here. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Now let's get into the actual covenant. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued uh, plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand, and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards, and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord." For he is a holy God, he is a jealous God, and he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules over them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth tree that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words that the Lord, uh, of the Lord that he has spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. And so again, we see that the majority of this chapter, verses 1 through 28, is a renewal ceremony. And it's written well because it, in and of itself, is a covenant. And the covenant, remember, is the core lens through which we interpret the Bible. Many of us know the covenants made between God and Adam, God and Noah and Abraham and David. We know the core covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai, using Moses as the intermediary. The book of Deuteronomy, the last of the five books of the Law of Moses, reiterates the covenant made at Sinai and emphasizes it in detail. The whole Bible is on this skeletal structure of covenants. And so the book of Deuteronomy serves as this covenant reminder as we start to move into Joshua. And it's structured as a covenant in and of itself. And you might remember, if you were with us when we covered Deuteronomy, we talked about the fact that covenants in ancient Near East are often uh, structured in a way that they're called suzerain treaties. Now, this is not a word that we use today, so let me explain a little bit what this is. For those of you that don't remember, a suzerain is simply a fancy term for a sovereign ruler, a king. And a suzerain treaty was one you would often find in the ancient Near East writings because there was a great deal of warfare that ended in a suzerain, or a king, conquering another king's tribe or nation. The suzerain, the conquering ruler, would then create a treaty, a suzerain treaty, to set up expectations for what it would look like for the conquered people, fancy term for that is the vassals, the conquered people to exist in peaceful submission under the reign of the new new ruler. Now, if you're not a history person and you're zoned out right now, tune back in, because this is the core of what you have entered into under your conquering King Jesus as his vassal. If you don't get this, folks, you're going to miss out on a whole lot in the Bible. And so these treaties were very well known in the ancient Near East, and they would follow often the same order. First, there would be an introduction, or a preamble, introducing who the parties in the treaty were. And then there would be a history of their relationship, briefly outlined. And then the stipulations of the covenant, or what would be expected from each of the parties. And often this would be primarily focused on the acts of the people conquered, not the ruler, because it was assumed that the ruler would grant provision and protection and peace. And then there would be a documentation of the oath, or response of the people entering into the covenant followed by a listing of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience, and finally a statement of the recording and expectation for remembrance or regular reading of the covenant. Now, this was the layout, broadly, of the entire book of Deuteronomy. And so we were very used to it as we came into Joshua, but we find something similar here in the structure of Joshua 24. As if chapter 23 was indeed Joshua giving instruction to the people, primarily primarily the leaders, But then here in chapter 24, he has assembled the full people at Shechem to go into detail and walk them through the oath and dedication so that they understand the seriousness with which they should take the covenant they were stepping into. It's no different, friends, than when you step into membership, we have our meetings, we have our discussions with you, and then we have you stand before the entire body and state an oath so you understand the seriousness of what you're stepping into and the people who respond back to you as your new local body of believers understand the seriousness for them. It's a covenant renewal. So let's now break down the covenant that we see here in Joshua 24 to understand its importance and structure. And then we're gonna look at how it applies to us as New Testament disciples of Christ. First, we have verses one through two, the first part of two. And in this section, we see a kind of covenant preamble which introduces the covenant and the parties involved. Let's read it again. Joshua, acting as the intermediary, gathered all the tribes of Israel, that's the vassal, the conquered people, to Shechem, and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel." Now, all of Israel, led by the various leaders assembled here at Shechem, which is a heavily significant location, as we'll talk about in a moment, but notice the wording, they presented themselves before God. This paints the picture of a royal audience, as if in a throne room, and the one presiding is Yahweh. Thus says the Lord, L-O-R-D, all in capitals. And remember that when L-O-R-D is capitalized in all four letters in your English translation, it is a scribal note that has behind it the Hebrew name of the God presented uh, presented to Moses, Yahweh, okay? I know that's a lot of information, but when you read the Old Testament, your God has a name, and that God is the God who came before Moses and said, I am the great I am, And the wording there is spelled out in the English letters, Yahweh. We don't know for sure that that is the perfect pronunciation of His name, but it's the best we come to. And so, when we write it out, we write it in all capitals, Y-H-W-H. Now, this is a covenant renewal ceremony here between these two parties, Yahweh as the conquering king and Israel as the vassal, the conquered people. And it's written in a covenantal form, Uh, in this manner to show that these are the parties involved. Well, then we move from verse 2 into the history of the relationship, from the preamble to the history of the relationship. And this is a relationship that's outlined very quickly, covering the entire law of Moses. But we see here a number of mileposts in the history between the two. First, we see Israel enveloped in the curse of original sin, given over to themselves and the idolatry that mankind chose over their creator. Like his forefathers, Abraham was stuck in a world of polytheist idol worship, blinded to reality, awaiting an eternally unreconciled future to God. But in God's gracious kindness, he reached down into mankind. All of mankind had gone the way of idolatry and turned their back on the original creator. But God, in his kindness, reached down into mankind and chose Abraham to be his own. And even though he was old in age, God brought fourth a miraculous people from Abraham. And this is where we can recognize the importance to Shechem. Would you turn with me to Genesis 12 and look at verses 1 through 9? Genesis 12, 1 through 9. We're going to see the first mention of Shechem here, and it's connected to Abraham. Give me an amen when you get there. Genesis 12, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord, what's the name behind that in Hebrew? Yahweh. Yahweh, said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as Yahweh had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Now, where is the book of Joshua taking place in? The land of Canaan. What has the entire book been about? Getting the inheritance of the land of Canaan. Okay, So Abram went there, and Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Now, did the Canaanites worship Yahweh? Absolutely not. They worshiped every other false god. Then the Lord, Yahweh, appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to who? Yahweh, Yahweh, who had appeared to him. Okay? Now, from there, he moved uh, to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of who? Yahweh. Yahweh. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now God called Abraham out of Babylon. Remember Babylon from your Sunday school, right? It started with Babel, the center of idolatry, the center of idol worship, the center of human worship and human sin. He called Abram out of this, brought him to Canaan, a land that we promised to his offspring, and he made a covenant with Abraham. God elected and covenanted with Abraham above all other humanity. Friends, this is miraculous grace. Abraham had done nothing. He'd done nothing to merit God choosing him and yet God chose him. But just as miraculous is Abraham's response seen through two of the most seemingly mundane verses in the Bible. The second half of verse seven here and the second half of verse eight. These capital L-O-R-D statements. In the midst of Canaan, a land teeming with idolatry to other gods, the same gods that Joshua and his people are now living among in the book of Joshua, Abraham stated his faith in, his allegiance to, and submission to the God that would make himself known in the Exodus as Yahweh. Now, quick question. In a day where people connected their prosperity, their fertility, their survival, their provision with the proper worship of their pagan fertility gods, what would happen to someone who built an altar to a foreign god on their land? Death. These folks didn't have any problem with death. They would sacrifice their own newborn babies on the idols that they served. They definitely didn't have a problem going and killing someone who was going to mess around with their fertility rituals. At a minimum, a beating and being run out of town. But where was it that Abraham stood amongst the pagan people and declared by his worship that Yahweh alone is God? He did it at Shechem, the same place where this renewal ceremony in Joshua 24 is taking place. He chose, in spite of the difficulty and complete and utter ostracization, to stand firm in the faith to which he was called. Friends, he was the only person on earth at this point that worshipped Yahweh. You think he felt a little bit alone? Do you think he had people telling him he was nuts? Yeah. And yet he stood firm. Where? At Shechem. And all the rest of the history, back in Joshua 24, you can turn back there with me, all the rest of the history through verse 13 is based off of this singular union between Yahweh and the people he has chosen, elected, and drawn to himself. And notice that this does not mean easygoing comfort. For the next milepost is the fact that they were allowed to be given over to slavery in Egypt. But God was still gracious in his election. He gave Esau, the first brother, land to possess, but he elected and chose the younger to be the one through whom his purposes would be accomplished. And so in Egypt, in the wilderness, and then in Canaan itself, there are two major themes that come out through this 13-verse history. The first is mankind's constant idolatry and worship of other gods in rebellion against Yahweh. Friends, we have hearts whose neutral gear is idolatry. Every moment of every day. We love to make gods that resemble ourselves. And those same people here in Joshua 24, those same people trying to enslave Israel in Egypt, curse Israel as under Balaam, and destroy Israel as in the warfare in Canaan, they are all too happy to assist with that idolatry. The world wants to suck you into its idolatry. But in every situation in this 13 verse history, the second theme that we see is that God protected his true people in spite of themselves. By God's grace alone, they were delivered from slavery to the kingdom of darkness in Egypt. By God's grace alone, they were blessed when they could have and should have been cursed by Balaam. By God's grace alone, when they should have been outnumbered and outgunned in Canaan, they were given victory through God's means of miraculous warfare. Friends, the history outlined here in 13 verses, the history of God with his people is all God's grace. Unearned, unmerited favor from the one true God. And friends, the same is still true for God's new covenant people. By God's grace alone, we were delivered from this present world and the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of disobedience, and the kingdom of his darkness. By God's grace alone, we are blessed by God's kindness when we should be overwhelmed by the curse of original sin. By God's grace alone, we walk victorious in a world conquered by sin so that we can say by the work of the cross, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are elected by God's grace, justified by God's grace, sanctified by God's grace, and we will be glorified by God's grace. God's grace alone. Friends, if not for the merciful and benevolent, gracious God that we serve, each and every one of us would easily, quickly, and gladly fall back into idolatry that blinds us from his truth, that enslaves us in sin's noose, and leads us to a curse that ends in eternal torment. But for the grace of God go I. But for the grace of God go you. The history of God with his people is all God's grace. It was the center of the Old Covenant. It is the center of the New Covenant. It is the center of all God's redemptive history. Now, why did God choose Israel? Because of his sovereign grace. Why did God choose you or me? Because of his sovereign grace. It was nothing of our own merit or value. It was nothing we deserved. Verse 13 here in Joshua 24 even recalls to mind the section we saw last week after the great Shema that speaks of even the provision in the land as God's sovereign grace. It says there, I gave you a land in which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. It's all God's grace. And so, because God sovereignly, graciously chose you out of all other people, he says to Israel, and he says to us, notice the next verse, verse 14, Now... Therefore, fear the Lord, fear Yahweh, not a Lord of your own making, and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve Yahweh, not a God of your own making. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve Yahweh and what he requires, then choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua boils down all of the Torah, all of the law, into two simple points. Put away the idols that you so badly want to join and mix with Yahweh so that you can feel comfortable in the world that you inhabit. And secondly, serve Yahweh alone with sincerity and faithfulness. Not Yahweh plus a bit of the fertility gods, Yahweh alone. The words sincerity and faithfulness here are that of purposeful covenant fidelity, such as is only found in monogamous marriage. And this is why the idea of marriage is supposed to be protected by the church. Because the covenant of marriage is a symbol and picture of our pure monogamous relationship with Yahweh. Now, Joshua made it clear that they had a choice to make. Not a choice in the past or in the future, but right then, he says, choose today. And they were to choose whether they would take on the responsibility of covenant loyalty required by Yahweh or whether they would choose to follow the fertility gods of either the Egyptians that enslaved them or the Canaanites that wanted to destroy them. Now, notice, friends, that this is intentional, purposeful action, and effort. Evangelicalism today has been saturated with two major lies. Number one, that effort on our part negates God's grace, so to be safe, we should be passive in our faith. Number two, that the Holy Spirit will simply overcome the one in whom he indwells, to force things upon you, such as passionate response. And so this is where Christians all over the place, they judge obedience whether, by whether or not they have a peace about it, rather than simply obeying what the word calls them to. Christians have become baby birds waiting to be fed. Now you hear it in what we say all the time. Yeah, I didn't get anything out of the sermon today. And the worship music didn't really do anything for me. It didn't really hit my heart. And no one's invited me over or initiated relationship with me. So we hop from church to church or relationship to relationship, waiting for that special feeling to overcome us. Now, brothers and sisters, the only logical response to God's grace is intentional Effort. It's not the effort that brought the grace, but it is the only logical response. So we are to choose every moment of every day whom we will serve. We are to choose to engage in worship. We are to choose to engage teaching. We are to choose to study God's word. We are to choose to do the hard work of relationship building when everyone else is avoidant, and we are to choose to reconcile when we don't feel like it or it doesn't make sense to us. Because of this broken theology in the church, the phrase, if it is evil in your eyes to serve Yahweh, is just as important today as it was then. To the non-Christian, it's abhorrent that God would choose anyone And require anything of those he chooses, for they are a God to themselves. To the false Christian, the truth of Yahweh's requirements of obedience, holiness, self discipline, and submission to a community of people seems like too much work. It's not happy, it's not easy, it's not nice. Intentional effort is not what many in the so called church signed up for. Christ laid out, though, the same choice for his followers when he said that those who follow him need to give their whole lives over to him. He is the conquering king. He is the suzerain. We are the vassal. Do you remember when Christ spoke of this in the eating of his body and drinking of his blood that we see symbolized in communion? Those of you ladies that are studying John, you probably know this one well. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it but Jesus? knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? In other words, sitting on a throne telling you you have to submit to me as king. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. There's that sovereign choice again. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Were they his disciples? No, because they were doing it on their own effort. Effort is the response. It is not the means of grace. But to follow Jesus is against all our natural bents and desires, and so we will eventually fall back. To submit our lives to Him is against our original sin's desire to reign supreme. And so only those who are justified and sanctified by God's gracious choosing will stand fast in submission to Him. And so it is a mercy of God to declare to His people, like Joshua did, if it seems too hard for you, or it seems wrong, or even if it's evil in your eyes to serve the God of the Bible, then please, by all means, Go serve one of the false gods that surrounds you. By all means, please, stop wasting everyone else's time. Jesus echoed this sentiment, too, with our earlier reading from Luke, where he declared that the cost of discipleship needs to be counted before it's agreed to. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with a thousand to meet him who comes against him with twenty thousand? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, before you walk out of this place and go, man, that pastor, he's really heavy. Recognize that everything I've read to you is scripture. It's not me. Because trust me, if I created a religion and wanted to draw a cult, it would be way easier than this. We'd all be drinking margaritas on a beach somewhere and playing basketball all the time, right? That'd be it. (laughs) Now, this is not Joshua's way or even Christ's way of pushing people aside. And friends, don't hear me trying to get you away from Christ. It is rather a statement of truth that only those truly drawn by the Father should follow after Christ. To take on discipleship on your own power will only result in the hardening of your heart when, over time, it becomes apparent to you and everyone around you that your obedience was hypocritical and done under your own power. And in the process, your false faith and hardened heart will simply cause the leaven of bitterness to infect those around you. And so today, choose whom you will serve. Are you truly Christ's? Then you will choose to follow Christ no matter what comes. If you have been drawn by the Father, you will choose to follow Christ no matter what comes, no matter who it might anger or ostracize. And you will obey Christ no matter the cost to you or to your pride. And you will listen to God's wisdom even when it feels as though it will break you to obey it. Better for you to lose your life and gain heaven than for you to stand firm in your pride and gain hell. But Joshua finishes with the statement any wise leader will say. He proclaims that he cannot choose for the people. He cannot force them, just like I cannot force anybody here. He can merely present the options. But as for him, and those in his family that he is responsible for, he will take on responsibility for what he can control. And he declares that they are the Lord's and therefore they will follow Yahweh alone, regardless of what anyone else in Israel does. Now there is great wisdom in this, my friends. For if you walk long enough with Christ, you will see brothers and sisters, supposedly, choose to go after false Christs. You will see them attend churches and find teachers that will itch their idolatrous ears and soothe their hardened hearts. You will see great men and women of supposed faith rise and then fall in scandal. You will see supposed hearts softened by the gospel, hardened by pride. And you will pour out your life for others, thinking that maybe the amount you love will be met with a ferocity of equal or greater love, Only to be disappointed and even harmed by their response. If you walk with Christ long enough, you will see all of this, I promise you. But at the end of all of it, the question will still be the same What are you responsible for? And the answer should still be the same Whatever my king requires of me. Not my spouse, not my kids. Not my boss, not my pastor or elders or politicians or neighbors or anyone else, not even the pagans that surround me. I am responsible for whatever my king has required of me. My prayer, brothers and sisters, for each of you that are members in this church is that you will grasp the immense faithfulness and grace of God in the history of his people and in the gospel that has been given to us so that your proclamation today will be, to whom else will I go? For you alone, Jesus, have the words of eternal life. As for me and my house, we will serve you. We have nothing else. That's my prayer for every one of you today, that you can proclaim that statement. Now this call and example of Joshua is presented to the people with great clarity. And now it's time for them to answer. And they do so here in Joshua twenty-four sixteen. Then the people answered, "'Far be it from us that we should forsake Yahweh to serve other gods. For it is Yahweh our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed.'" And the Lord Yahweh drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve Yahweh, for he is our God. They quickly repeat the history that was just given to them. They agree with it, and they say, far be it from us. We would never do that. In other words, they affirm the covenant. And they say, yes, please hold us accountable to this, for we believe it would be foolish and illogical to turn back to our old ways. In essence, they take the oath and they enter into the covenant voluntarily by their own admission. But Joshua then responds back. And he does so in a way that speaks much like the section of a suzerain treaty that outlines blessings for obedience and cursing for disobedience. And notice his response is a bit different than what you would expect in our day that needs to be positive and encouraging. Let's read. Joshua says to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God, he is a jealous God, he will not forgive your transgression or your sin. If you forsake Yahweh and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve Yahweh. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen Yahweh to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now, this is like one of those um, de-motivational posters. You guys know what I'm talking about? Can you imagine if a pastor did this? Hey, church, follow Jesus. We will. No, you won't. No, you absolutely won't. But while that seems to be the face value of the statement, it's more than that. First, it's used as a very clear line of delineation to back up what he just said. For Joshua knew that there were currently idols among the people and mixture with other pagan gods. Otherwise, he wouldn't have called them to put them away in the first place. Secondly, remember that the first audience of this book was Israel during the time of the judges, a time when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And so this would have hit home in a big way for them as they realized, man, Joshua was right. Our ancestors swore up and down that they would stay firm in their faith, but they turned to idolatry quicker than any could have imagined. And third, we get a bit more context from the words holy and jealous here in verse 19. You see, the God we serve, Yahweh, is a holy God, and therefore one that cannot be served partially or lightly. He is a God that must be served with complete fidelity and faithfulness. There must be a constant seeking after humility to remove any stain of sin in our lives. And when we fall in that, because friends, every one of us, myself included in this room, we fall and fail in that, And it's brought to our attention, there must be immediate conviction and repentance. Don't waste time, because if you wait to be convicted and repent, your heart will harden. Because God is also a jealous God, who is not jealous of other false gods, they don't even exist, but jealous in that his righteous, just, and incomparable nature requires him to discipline and even judge unto punishment those who are in covenant with him if they do not maintain covenant loyalty. He's a good God. And so Joshua is letting them know clearly that if they forsake the God with whom they are in covenant, he is not a safe God to betray. He would consume them for his own holiness sake. And now, with all the expectations of the covenant on the table, they again respond here in oath that they will stay true. We read verses 21 and 22. Let's continue in verse 23. He responds to them and says, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, Yahweh, our God, we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them Excuse me, at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone, set it up there under the terebinth tree that was by the sanctuary of the Lord, And Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of Yahweh, the Lord, that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Now, notice that I've read, every time we see the Lord, I've read Yahweh in there. Why? Because it's been there a lot, hasn't it? He's trying to get them to understand you can't create a Yahweh of your own making. You can't take Yahweh and combine it with some things from the world around you. We go back to chapter 23 and see that syncretism is not of God. We need to follow the God of the Bible and what he says, not a God of our own making. And so this was very clear to them, and they said, we will follow him. And so then the last portion of the suzerain treaty was the recording of information that confirmed it. As has the attestation of witnesses, the statement of remembrance that would be required in the form of a regular reading or a ceremony or a symbol. And notice, friends, that Joshua is acting here as the mediator of the covenant. It is a covenant between the suzerain, Yahweh, the conquering king, and the people he has conquered, the vassals, the covenant people of Israel. And Joshua rightly says to them that they are now witnesses against themselves if they do not stay true to the covenant before them. And to remind them of this fact, he ratifies the covenant, adds it to the already ratified book of Moses as the sixth book of the canon of God's people, and sets up a large stone reminder under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And this stone was to be a witness against anyone who would deal falsely with the covenant and therefore with the God behind the covenant. And then he sends them away to their homes and inheritances to serve God, be grateful for his blessing and inheritance, and conquer the land and we see the sun go down behind the horizon as they walk into it. No, but wait, there's more. Take a look at verse 29. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, Yahweh, died, being 110 years old, and they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath-serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. Israel served Yahweh all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that Yahweh did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. We finish the book here with an epilogue that speaks of three separate funerals. And what we will see here as we close is God's old covenant faithfulness points to new covenant hope in Christ. God's old covenant faithfulness points to new covenant hope in Christ. We're left at the end of the book with what seems like a cliffhanger But it's actually a seam joining this book to those before and after it. God has saved Israel, given them the land, and conquered their enemies. God has been faithful. That's the message of of the entire book of Joshua. And this is hammered home because of what's stated in verse 32. For the bones of Joseph have now been buried at Shechem. And this connects All of the law of Moses and all of the history of God's people until this point. We were just reminded a bit ago that Shechem was the first place that Abraham built an altar to Yahweh. And then a little bit later in Genesis 33, verses 18 through 20, the patriarch Jacob, Joseph's father, bought the land and placed an altar there again in a renewal of covenant faithfulness to the God of his forefather Abraham. It says in Genesis thirty-three eighteen, 18, And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from uh, Paran Aram. And he camped before the city, and from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. And then he erected an altar and called it El Eloi, Israel. And so this land is now in the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, And then in Genesis 50, 24 through 26, a little bit later in the book of Genesis, Joseph made his offspring promise that he, that they would bury his bones there in that burial plot in Shechem. This is from Genesis 50, 24 through 26. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, the land of Egypt, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. That's Canaan. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And so friends, much later, we see now the Israelites being faithful because God was faithful to them to provide this land. And so Joseph's offspring take his bones out of Egypt and they bring them to Canaan. The whole book of Joshua has been about God's faithfulness to his promises to his people. He has conquered for them, given them the promised land, and now, as a nice bow on top of the whole book of Moses, he even has the bones of Joseph finally buried there, closing the circle from Abraham through the exile to Egypt and the exodus and conquering of the promised land. And as a final punctuation mark on the entire book, Joshua shows that God is faithful to his promises. And so we see a covenant fulfilled. And for the first audience of the Jews that lived during the time of the judges, this was a powerful reminder. The entirety of the book was intended to embolden the faithful remnant in their faith as they sat amongst what seemed like a pagan onslaught from the surrounding nations. They were reminded by this closing of Joshua that they too needed to do what Joshua did, God had proved faithful to his covenant, he had fulfilled his covenant, and now they, like us, needed to enter into a covenant renewed, a covenant fulfilled and a covenant renewed. But it's also interesting that right alongside this funeral ceremony of the bones of Joseph, there's also noted the burial of Joshua, the prophet who had led them in the spirit of Moses, and Eliezer, the priest, the son of Aaron. These men who had seen or who had been at Mount Sinai when the law was given, and their offspring who followed in their footsteps were now gone. Israel was, in a sense, as we close Joshua, without a prophet, without a priest. and they would soon find that their forsaking of the covenant meant that they were without a king. And for roughly 400 years, uh, roughly 400 years later, Israel would cry out for a king, not realizing that an earthly king would lead them fully back into the promised land that they had been completely given, uh, given in Joshua, they could not accomplish what God had done in Joshua through a human king. Their prophet died, their priest died, and they found themselves without an earthly leader, no one to be their link to their true king, Yahweh. And so we're left with this vacuum at the end of the book. There needs to be a more perfect covenant. covenant needed. I wonder if Joshua, or the scribes who helped finish this epilogue after Joshua's death, knew at the time they wrote this that they were pointing to one who would not only be their earthly king, their earthly priest, and earthly prophet, but one who would connect heaven and earth, God and man, and be the heavenly king, priest, and prophet as well. As I look at these three statements of death and burial, what I see is this giant vacuum of leadership, And judges would prove this as sinful leader after sinful leader attempted to help lead a people who only did what was right in their own eyes. What they needed was a new and final king, a final priest and final prophet, one who would initiate a new and perfect covenant. And for this covenant, renewed at Shechem by Joshua, it would indeed be broken and forsaken just as Joshua feared. And so in the books of the prophets, men like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel promised that one would come who would be the mediator of a new and better and more perfect covenant. You remember this from our earlier reading this morning from Jeremiah 31. He says, "'Behold, the days are coming,' declares the Lord, "'when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, "'not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day "'when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, "'my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband,' declares the Lord." But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Who was it that could be the perfect mediator between God and man, who could do a true covenant renewal ceremony that would stick, Who was it that could be the incarnation of God the Father so that all humanity might know him? Who was it that could provide the perfect sacrifice that would allow reconciliation with God, that would forgive their iniquity and cause God to remember our sins no more? Friends, there is only one name under heaven by which we can and must be saved, and that is of Jesus the Christ. There is a reason that we so celebrate the advent, the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, and it's because in the flesh, he brought the new covenant. He accomplished the perfect covenant. He did what no, ever, no other covenant mediator could ever do. And through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his perfect work as high priest of our faith, he's washed us clean, provided a perfect sin offering on our behalf, and cleansed the heavenly throne room of God so that we might boldly enter into God's presence. Through his body and blood offered on the sacrificial altar of the cross of Calvary, Christ has ratified and put in place a new perfect covenant. And this covenant does not negate the first, but it completes it and makes it unbreakable. For you and I, under our own power, could never fulfill the old covenant. Our hearts, like those of Israel, would and do quickly wander into idolatry. But because of the death, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement of Christ, he now reigns over his kingdom as the conquering king, the suzerain, and he has ransomed his people, the vassals, you and I, from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. Hebrews 7.22 says that this work of salvation makes Jesus the guarantor, the guarantor of a better covenant. And because of this covenant, those whom the Father calls through the Son are likewise entering into eternal inheritance, just as the Israelites did. Hebrews 9.15 says, Therefore Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And so now we await the fullness of that eternal inheritance. God the Father has called us to be his own by his Spirit poured out in our hearts. And we recognize every Sunday God's covenant faithfulness, do we not? But we are not perfected in glory yet, and so we, like Joshua and the Israelites in Joshua 24, we practice a regular covenant renewal ceremony to draw our minds and hearts back to God. We do so every week as we gather as the new covenant people of God. We hear from God through his word as he calls us to be ministers and servants of this new covenant. We recommit to the call to love one another and fight the sin in our midst and prepare to be evangelists to go to the surrounding pagan people. And we enter into remembrance of the covenant that we are renewing every time we quote from 1 Corinthians 11.25, in the same way, Jesus at the last supper took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Friends, do you see why as a Christian, it is important to know that you have entered into a covenant? under your conquering king, who is now also your friend and savior. We are conquered by Christ's work. Does your life reflect that, or are you still reigning as king? As we practice this covenant renewal every Lord's day, we are not earning our salvation or earning God's good grace, for we have already been elected and called and justified by his grace alone. And by his presence among us through his spirit and his word, Jesus, the better Joshua, the perfect Joshua, is calling on all of us to respond to the grace of the Father that has been showered upon us. We can only do so by fearing him and serving him in sincerity and faithfulness and actively putting away the false gods that we serve and actively serving him alone. The covenant we call each member to live by is simply an extension of the covenant call God has upon each and every one of us as believers, and this is the covenant call that we renew every Lord's day. And so to those of you who do not follow Christ as Savior this morning, as Lord, as King, I want to issue the same call to you that Joshua did to Israel in our text today. Choose this day whom you will serve. It might be that you serve yourself or the gods of our current age such as comfort or lust or greed, enlightenment, spirituality, hypernationalism, social justice, or maybe even just an elevation of your family as an idol. If that is you, if you stand in the midst of that idolatry, then dive into them deep so that you might be brought to the end of yourself and instead cry out to God. Embrace your idols so that you see that they are empty. So that Christ's call on your life might take hold. But if it is that Christ has already called you to serve him, if he has gripped your heart and called you to himself, then please, for the love of the God that has called you, stop messing around with mixture. Stop serving them while saying you want to serve Christ. Serve Christ alone with fear and reverence and faithfulness. If you'd like to do that, please come talk with one of the pastors after the service. We would love to talk with you and walk with you in that decision. To those of you in this room who've been attending for a while, I want to invite you to join us in fellowship within this new covenant by submitting yourself to Christ in the midst of this local church. Give yourself over to his people so that we can belong to you and you can belong to us. Choose this day whom you will serve. If Christ, then he has called you to submit to him within a local body of believers, whether here or elsewhere but count the cost. Following Christ is not an individual sport. It is one that requires you to lay down your life for those with whom you enter into covenant. If you'd like to do that, you can talk with our associate pastor, Nick Marks, to walk through the process of stepping into that covenant membership here at Mission Fellowship. Lastly, to those of you who are covenant members of Mission Fellowship, I want to call you to stay true in covenant faithfulness to Christ as he has stayed true to you. For if you wander, if you continue to mix with the world around you in a way where you try to contort God's word to make it palatable to the pagans around you, it would be better for you to never have proclaimed to be a Christian at all. He has called you and saved you by his grace alone. Now therefore, fear him and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods of your friends, your relatives, and those around you, and serve the Lord alone. But if it's evil in any way to serve the God as the Bible dictates, then choose this day whom you will serve. For there are more false gods surrounding you than I care to number, ever ready to receive your allegiance. But friends, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. On this Lord's day, I invite you to declare the same. Declare the same in passion and purposefulness as we partake in the ceremony of remembrance and covenant renewal at the table of our Lord. Let's now go in that covenant renewal ceremony to proclaim that we follow Yahweh and we follow the one whom he sent, Jesus Christ. Let's declare that we will serve the Lord alone with our lives, amen? Amen. Amen. Father God, we thank you for the book of Joshua. It has been such a blessing and encouragement to see that you indeed are faithful to your promises. But Lord, at the same time, that immediately flips the coin to the other side where we see that we are faithless. And so this covenant renewal ceremony at the end of the book is fitting to call us to a place where we have to look at ourselves, look at our hearts and minds, look at ourselves as a church and realize that we often mix with the world and try and create a God of our own making that reflects us and reflects what we desire and the comfort we hope to have in the midst of this broken world. And so, Lord, I pray the call Joshua had to the people in Joshua 24 would be the same call that you would place on our hearts by your Holy Spirit today, that you would call each of us in the midst of our current circumstances, our broken relationships, our sin, our, our marriages, our relationships with our kids, our relationships with this church. Lord, we pray that you would enter into those circumstances and you would call us to choose this day whom we will serve, whether you or make excuses and continue to serve the idols that we have built. And Lord, I pray for every member of this church and those who are here visiting that you would help them to know that the only logical choice based on your faithfulness is to choose to follow you and lay down our lives, pick up our crosses, and surrender ourselves to you. Help us to do that now as we sing to you, as we go to the table, and as we take of communion together. In Jesus' name, amen.